Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight's reading will consist of several sections uh, from 1 Samuel chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, I won't go ahead and read them out right now, but I'll call them out as I read them out. So uh, if we can go ahead and just start in 1 Samuel chapter 8, please. That's 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking... Sorry. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now jumping to verse 19 in chapter 8. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Now, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. And now jumping to chapter 10, starting at verse 17. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel out of, up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all of your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has a man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. 
Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow lead us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Well, hello everyone. Um, I think I know most of you, many of you at least. Um, My family and I usually attend the 10.30 service, Um, but I did used to come to the 6pm many moons ago. Uh, It's nice to be here again tonight. Why don't we pray together as we come to these passages. Father God, we pray... Um, that you would just open our ears and open our eyes, Lord, so that we might uh, see and hear clearly, that you might reveal yourself to us, that you might reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to us in all his beauty and goodness and grace and glory and love so that we might be moved within, filled with joy, full of praise. We pray this for your sake. Amen. Well, when I I was in high school, the only thing I ever wanted was to make the athletics team. I wanted the honour of being on the athletics team, I remember praying to God. This is before I was a Christian, but I remember praying to God, God, if you give me this one thing, I'll never ask for anything else again. I eventually made the athletics team. I haven't prayed since then. (laughs) That's not true. Many years later, uh, after I became a Christian, I was in a relationship with someone who wasn't a Christian And I remember praying exactly the same thing. All I wanted was for her to become a Christian. That's all I wanted, just that one thing. That one wasn't answered. What do you really, really want? What's the one thing you think, if I could just have that, it would solve all my problems? It would make me truly happy. What would do it for you? Uh, What do you find yourself daydreaming about? What are you longing for? Maybe maybe you just want to meet someone one day, you want to get married, maybe that's it. Maybe it's to have kids. Uh, Maybe you think about your dream job. Maybe you just want to travel, travel around, maybe make more money. Maybe you look forward to retirement. Maybe you just want to go home so you can watch Netflix or something. What do you really, really want? What is it for you? Because chapters 8 to 10 in 1 Samuel want to address three issues for us. First of all, what's the problem with really, really wanting something? Then second, what does God do about this problem? And then thirdly, what should we do about this problem? What's the problem with really, really wanting something? What does God do about it? And what should we do about it? So first of all, what's the problem with really, really wanting something? The answer is, you might be in danger of turning a good thing into a God thing. 
You might be in danger of turning a good thing into a God thing. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites really, really want a king. They want a king like all the other nations. Samuel's getting old, and so he appoints his two sons to look after Israel. The problem is they're really bad leaders. They're greedy. They're corrupt. So life is not good for the Israelites. But then they look around them at all the other nations, and they think, how good would it be to have a king like they have? They imagine having a king who'd protect them, who'd provide security, He'd fight their battles for them. He'd bring them glory. They'd enjoy the spoils of victory. And they'd be just so satisfied. And so they really, really want a king like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a king. God had earlier in the scriptures planned to give them one. But God tells Samuel, the problem is they've done what Israel have always done to me. They've forsaken me for other gods. In other words, they've turned this good thing into a God thing. It's like they're looking to something else in God's place. They're looking to something else to save them and kind of give them their ultimate happiness. They're looking to something else the way they should have been looking to God. They're looking to something else the way they used to look to God. It's like they they don't need God anymore because they found something better. The idea of a king like all the other nations has stolen their hearts away from God. And in that sense, they've rejected God. They've replaced God. They've forsaken God. When I was uh, in year six in primary school, I used to muck around with the girl who sat next to me in class, and we got on really well together and felt really comfortable around this girl, which was really strange for me at that age, feeling comfortable around girls. But one day her friend came up to me in the playground and said, Claire wants to know if you'll go out with her. Now, this was the first time this sort of thing had ever happened to me. And it felt amazing for someone to like me like that. I was just so elated. And so I did what anyone else in my position would do. I said, I'll think about it. And I just, (laughs) I wanted this feeling to go on forever. Anyway, the next time she asked me, I said yes. But of course, after that, um, you know, I I didn't speak to her or go near her in the playground after that. It was just so awkward. And so a couple of weeks later, she dumped me for a boy in year five. (laughs) And I I was heartbroken. And then we had this school disco. And I saw her dancing with this other guy. And I wished it was me. She was looking at him the way she used to look at me. She didn't need me anymore. She'd found someone better. And he'd stolen her heart away from me. And I felt rejected and replaced and forsaken. And that's what we do to God when we turn good things into God things. We look to something else in God's place. We kind of elevate something to God's status and we rely on it to save us. We forsake God as it steals our heart away from him. And here's the thing, when it steals your heart away, it's like you can't let it go. You know, the Israelites, they're warned. They're warned about how oppressive a king like the other nations would be. Samuel tells them, he'll take your property, he'll take over your businesses, he'll take your money, he'll make your sons into slaves, he'll steal your daughters. Life will be much harder than it is now. But the Israelites don't listen. They still, they demand a king. It's like they can't listen to reason because the heart wants what the heart wants. What they really, really want has captured their heart and they can't let it go. I read about these guys who uh, trap 
animals um, in parts of Africa for the zoos in America, and they say that one of the hardest animals to catch is this monkey called the ring-tailed monkey. But for the Zulus of these different parts of Africa, it's really quite simple. They've been catching this agile little creature with ease for years. And their trap, the trap they use is, is nothing more than a particular melon that grows on a vine. And they know that um, the seeds of this melon are a particular favourite for the monkey. And so the Zulus, they simply cut a hole in the melon, just large enough for the monkey to stick its hand in and to reach the seeds. And so the monkey will stick its hand in, it will grab as many seeds as it can, and then it will try and pull its hand out, but it can't because its fist is now larger than the hole. And apparently these monkeys will fight and screech and scream for hours trying to get their hand out of the hole. But it can't get free of the trap unless it lets go of the seeds, which it refuses to do. It's almost like it can't bring itself to let the seeds go. And meanwhile, these, the Zulus come up behind it and, and grab the monkey. But that's like us when our hearts latch onto something. You know, we can't seem to let it go. It's almost like we get trapped by our own desires. They're too powerful for us. And we become a kind of a slave to them. And they rule us. So you need to be careful when you really, really want something because <clears throat> you're in danger of turning a good thing into a God thing. And not only does it steal your heart away from God, but it's like you can't let it go. And it reminds me a bit of the rich young man who came to Jesus one day and said, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And in the end of the conversation, Jesus tells him, well, you need to sell all your possessions give the money to the poor, and then follow me. See, Jesus is trying to show him what his problem is. His possessions are a good thing that he's turned into a God thing, and he can't turn to Christ for eternal life because his possessions have captured his heart and he can't let them go. And so the passage ends up saying he went away sad. You need to be careful when you really, really want something because you might be in danger of turning a good thing into a God thing. You might really, really want to meet somebody one day that you can fall in love with and hopefully marry. And there's nothing wrong with wanting a spouse. That's how most of us are wired. And marriage is a good gift from God. But if you begin to look for a spouse and look at your spouse for ultimate happiness... Like if you think this is the one thing I need to be happy, then you're in danger of turning a good thing into a God thing because you're looking to something the way you should only be looking to God. And you're in danger of forsaking God in your heart as it begins to steal your heart away from him. And you know that it's stolen your heart away when you can't let it go. You know, I've seen this so many times. If it, even if it's like... You know, a Christian getting into a relationship with someone they shouldn't be in a relationship with. It's like they can't listen to reason anymore because what you really, really want has captured your heart. Or you might really, really want to have children one day. And that's a lovely, lovely desire to have. And it rightfully causes, you know, a lot of women a lot of pain when they can't. And you don't need to feel guilty about that. You know, the rest of us need to be completely empathetic to people in that situation. It's very painful. 
But at the same time, we just got to be careful not to turn a good thing into a God thing, where even if we have children, where we start to look to our children for ultimate purpose and ultimate fulfilment in life, because if you're feeling like you can't possibly live without that, you might be turning a good thing into a God thing. You might be putting your children in God's place. And you know, for parents, that's actually the worst thing you can do to your child. They can't possibly live up to that expectation. You'll end up crushing them. Or it might be the dream job that you really want one day. And there's, there's nothing wrong with having ambition, but when a job becomes your ultimate sense of meaning and purpose and fulfilment and worth, if your job is what you live for and you believe that that's what's going to make you someone, then you may have turned a good thing into a God thing. And it's the same with all kinds of other things that we really, really want. You know, more money, if I had more money, a new house, travel experiences, Netflix series, video games, your footy team to win, retirement, food. There's nothing wrong with wanting any of those things. They're all good gifts from God. The problem is when you want them too much and you elevate them to God's status. The Bible simply calls it idolatry. That's what we're talking about here. So people want to ask, well, how do you know? How do you know when you've kind of crossed that line? How do you know when you've turned a good thing into a God thing? And the answer is when you start to see the bad fruit in your life. When you demand that God give you something like the Israelites did and you get angry at him if he doesn't. When you find yourself getting jealous of others because they've got something and you don't. When you feel like you're just going to die if you don't get that thing you want. When you become obsessed with something that you can't focus on anything else. When you start to see that kind of bad fruit in your life there's a sure sign that you may have turned a good thing into a God thing. You know, you become like Gollum from The Lord of the Rings, you know, and his absolute obsession to get his precious ring. And it captures your heart and you can't let it go and it corrupts you. And you do almost anything to get what you want. So the next question is, what does God do about this problem? What does God do about it? What does God do when you crave something to the point of turning a good thing into a God thing? And the answer is, sometimes God gives you exactly what you want. The Israelites really, really want a king like all the other nations. And even though it's a rejection of God, God says, okay, I'll give you the sort of king you really want. And so then in chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul. And Saul is the most handsome young man in all of Israel. He's a head taller than anybody else. And so if you were going to pick anyone as your champion to represent your team, if you're going to make a movie of this, Saul would be the actor. You know, he's movie star quality. He just looks the part. Remember at school when they used to kind of get two captains to pick the teams? You know, Saul would have always been the first person chosen. He's just that guy. And so you have this story after that in chapter 9 about some lost donkeys, if you went through this in your Bible study. The lost donkeys who, which belonged to Saul's dad, they just happened to wander off and go missing one day. And so Saul and one of his dad's servants, they set off to look for them. And as they travel along, it becomes obvious that God's behind this whole thing. He's actually taking 
um, Saul on this journey and he's leading him to Samuel so that he can be discovered and anointed as the new king of Israel. But the question is, why is God wanting to give them Saul as their king if it's actually a rejection of him and if it's not going to be good for them? Does God sometimes give us what we want out of spite to teach us a lesson? Well, actually, I think God does sometimes want to teach us something, but it's not out of spite. I think God sometimes gives us what we really, really want so that we can discover for ourselves that it doesn't truly satisfy and in the hope that we will return to him for him to meet the desires of our heart. You know, God is like the father of the prodigal son. In the story, the son, you know, remember, he really, really wants his inheritance so that he can get away and he can enjoy the pleasures of the world. And even though it's basically a rejection of his father, his father gives him his inheritance and he lets him go. And at first the son thinks he's going to be living the ultimate good life, but he soon discovers he's not satisfied the way he thought he would be. And he realises what a big mistake he's made. He wants to go back home and so off he goes, only to find his father anxiously waiting for him to return. And that's like God with us. Sometimes we really want something and we pray for it. Sometimes we want something and we pray for it. And you know, God will open a door for us. And we think that means that God wants me to go through that door because we think that's what God is telling me to do. He's obviously leading me in a particular direction. He's opened the door for me. But you've got to be careful with that because sometimes when you really want something, God will open a door for you, but it's not because he wants you to go through it. He's only opened it so you can get back again when you realise you shouldn't have gone through it in the first place. And that's often a, a very painful lesson to learn. So the last question is, what should we do about this problem? You know, when we really, really want something, what can we do to prevent ourselves from turning good things into God things and kind of going down that path? And the answer is, you need to see that what you really, really want can never ultimately satisfy your soul. Chapter 10 uh, is a really interesting passage if you looked over it in, in your Bible study. And for the longest time, I couldn't work out what the point of it was. I, I just, it just seems to be kind of a filling out of the story until Saul is officially crowned king. And so I kept thinking, why does the author tell us all this? It just seems like a big slab of information. But then after a while, as I kept reading it over and over, I started to notice something about Saul. These weird little details about Saul just keep popping up throughout the story. And it's like the author keeps giving you these little clues that while Saul looks the part on the outside, something's not quite right with him on the inside. So when Samuel first meets Saul and starts treating him as God's anointed king, Saul says, you know, there must be some kind of mistake here. I'm no one special, he says. And you tend to think he's kind of just being humble, which is kind of nice. But as the passage unfolds, you start to realise that it's just the first clue that something's not quite right with Saul. 
So then Samuel, he tries to convince Saul by telling him all these really detailed predictions that are going to happen to him, where he's going to go, who he's going to see, what they're going to say to him, what they're going to give him, really detailed predictions so that there can be no doubt that God's behind it all. And he tells Saul that the Spirit of God is going to come upon him in the most powerful way and completely transform him. And so off he goes, and everything that Samuel predicts comes true, right down to the very last letter. And the Spirit of God comes upon Saul in the most amazing way. But when his uncle kind of comes up to him and says, you know, what's, what's going on here? Saul doesn't tell him. You know, he says something about Samuel, but he doesn't tell him what's happened. It's almost like he's just reluctant for some reason to talk about it, even though it's so obvious the God's behind it all with the predictions and the spirit. It's like Saul doesn't quite believe it himself. And so then God calls all the people together to announce that he really has chosen Saul as their new king. Only problem is when he goes to present Saul, he's not there. He's gone missing. And it turns out Saul is hiding And it's just another clue that even though Saul looks the part on the outside, on the inside, it's like he's full of self-doubt about himself playing the role of king. And then right at the end of the passage, God gives Saul this, this group of valiant men to kind of follow him around, a bit like bodyguards, I think. But there's also this other group of men called scoundrels who decide they don't really want Saul as their king anymore, and so they start to mock him. And after everything that's happened, with the Spirit of God coming upon him, with God himself declaring him to be king, with these new bodyguards with him, you're half expecting Saul to kind of turn to them and declare, off with their heads. But the author simply ends the passage by saying, but Saul remained silent. And it just seems so odd. What an odd little detail to end the passage with. You know, why does the author include that? And why didn't Saul say anything anyway? And the answer is, I think, because it's another clue. And as you add all the little clues together, the picture of Saul that the author wants you to see is that while he looks the part on the outside, inwardly, he's, not, he's just not the big, courageous king that they're hoping for. Saul is like the lion out of the Wizard of Oz. You ever seen The Wizard of Oz or read that story? When Dorothy first meets the lion on the yellow brick road, he gives her a bit of a scare because, you know, on the outside he looks all big and scary as lions do. But it turns out the lion in The Wizard of Oz, as you might know, has no courage. And so inside he's all timid and nervous and full of self-doubt. And that's like Saul. And at first, you know, I wasn't sure if I was kind of getting the right impression of Saul. And I I kept thinking, am I reading into this? Because these clues the author gives are really quite subtle. And so I kept thinking, you know, why didn't the author just make it more obvious and spell it out a bit more what Saul is really like? But then it hit me. That's the point, I think. It's only when you look carefully that you start to see it. The Israelites were meant to look back and read this and they're meant to pick up the clues, the things they missed. Because some things promise so much. But it's only as you look a little more carefully you realise they're not going to be able to deliver what they promise. So often the grass looks greener on the other side. You look over and you think, boy, that grass looks green over there. I'd like to be over there. But it's only as you look a little more closely 
you start to realise the green, the grass is not quite as green as you first thought it was. And it's the same with all the good things we turn into God things. You need eyes to see that they can't ultimately satisfy your soul like you first think they can. You need to see that a spouse can never provide you with a happily ever after. No matter who you marry, they won't be able to live up to your expectations of everlasting happiness. If you expect marriage to solve all your problems, you'll be left disappointed. I've literally just finished reading Pride and Prejudice. And in the final chapter, the final chapter, if you've read that, all the girls laugh, all the boys go, what's that book? The final chapter, after Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy finally get together, it's depicted as this absolute heavenly bliss. Oh, boy, it's so good. Ultimate happiness, ultimate happiness ever after. But the thing is, you haven't read the second book, Pride and Prejudice 2. It's set a few years down the track. Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, they've discovered each other's annoying habits and sinful tendencies. Turns out Elizabeth can be pretty stubborn sometimes. Who knew? Who would have guessed that? And it really tests Mr. Darcy's patience. And Mr. Darcy turns out to be more cold and mysterious after all. And he likes to spend a lot of time alone. Elizabeth has a baby. They get tired and grumpy. They have lots of fights. Remember the woman that Jesus met at the well? She'd had a string of relationships trying to satisfy something. But Jesus said to her, the water you're drinking can never satisfy your thirst. Only the water I give you can can satisfy you in that way. A spouse can't save you. They need saving too. It's not their role to be saviour. And that's actually good news to discover. Because when you stop looking to your spouse to save you, it actually frees you to love them as you should. You need to see that Your children won't bring you ultimate meaning and purpose to your life. Children can be a real blessing. That's true. But if you expect to find ultimate meaning and purpose through them, you'll be disappointed. No matter how careful and invested you are as a parent, they'll always be far from perfect. And in the end, you know what? They'll leave the nest and they'll never repay you the amount of time and effort and love you poured into them. They'll direct most of that elsewhere. And if they have been your meaning and purpose in life, you'll be lost when they're gone. I know Facebook and Instagram make it look like everybody else has the perfect marriage and the perfect family, but you don't see the rest of their lives. Life's not like it is on Facebook. They're just moments. They're the best of people's moments. But Facebook, it doesn't capture everything in a person's life. It doesn't capture everything in your life. You know that. It's the same for everybody else. It just misses so much. And so in that sense, it can sometimes create a false impression. And you need to see that. You need to see that even if you get your dream job one day, there'll still be difficult parts and boring bits. And if you look to your job for ultimate meaning and purpose, you'll feel worthless when you get too old to work anymore. In the aged care facility that I work at, that is how so many elderly people feel when they get too old to be able to do much anymore because they've been led to believe that what you do is what makes you someone. But what you do, your job, it doesn't make you someone in God's eyes. 
any achievement or success from your job, it will fade over time. You'll lose any significance and worth in the blink of an eye. You need to see that having more money, more money won't solve your problems. Money can't give you ultimate security. You can lose your life just like that. Just like that. And if you look to money for your ultimate security, you'll never have enough. You'll become greedy and you'll worry about it all the time. If you look to money to give you ultimate comfort and pleasure in life, then you'll be left empty in the end. Remember the rich fool who had a bumper crop and he thought to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns to store my crop in. I'll put my feet up and I'll take life easy. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be taken from you. Then who will get your money? See, in the end, he's got nothing but an empty life because he's lived for his own selfish comfort. Imagine presenting yourself to God in the end like that. You need to see that travel experiences, they can be great, but if you're looking to them for ultimate adventure, ultimate excitement in life, you'll be left empty in the end because you can't live on holidays forever. And there are so many other struggles and suffering in life that holidays can't solve. You need to see that retirement can't give you ultimate satisfaction. It's good for a bit, but you know, as you get older and start going to the doctor every second day, you'll wish you were young again. Everybody laughed in the morning service when I said that. <laughs> Some cried. <laughs> you need to see that what you really, really want, no matter what it is, cannot ultimately satisfy you. Not ultimately. Because when you do see that, a couple of things start to happen. First of all, you stop turning good things into God things. They just stay as good things that you can be thankful for, that you can enjoy when you have them, but that doesn't kill you when you don't. And instead of demanding God give you what you want, when you see that it can't ultimately satisfy you, you're able to simply ask for it and then leave it to God to give you what's best for you. And most important of all, when you see that what you really, really want can't truly satisfy your soul, you'll be open to something better. The only thing that can truly satisfy your soul. If the Israelites could see that a king like Saul could never deliver what he promised, then they'd be open to a better king, you see, a king that only God can provide. According to the prophet Isaiah, Jesus didn't look like much on the outside. Unlike Saul, the prophet says, he had no beauty to attract us to him. But inwardly, Jesus was full of courage and conviction. He went into the desert for 40 days to stand up to Satan's temptations. He resolutely set out to Jerusalem to overcome evil and sin, even though it would cost him everything. He had confidence in who he was. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the provider of living water. I am the shepherd of the sheep. I am the one who can lead you to greener pastures. Jesus is the king they should have been longing for. And Jesus is the king we should be longing for too. Jesus never forsook his father. 
Even when his enemies closed in around him, he didn't look elsewhere for security or comfort or for his own happiness. He prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But not as I will. Your will be done, he said. He asked for what he wanted, but then he left it to God. He submitted to his Father's will, even to the point of death. And through all his suffering, he didn't look to something else in God's place. He remained faithful and loyal and devoted to his father. And yet here's the thing. He was treated as if he had rejected and forsaken God. He was the only one who never did. But he was treated as if he had forsaken God. Why did that happen? What was going on there? The answer is, he was doing that for you. He was doing that to save you. He was exchanging places with you. He became the unfaithful one so you could be treated as the loyal one. He was neglected so you might know the full measure of God's love and care. On the cross, he went thirsty so you could have ultimate fulfilment, ultimate satisfaction. He gladly missed out on everything so you could have an inheritance where you will want for nothing. So you don't need to look elsewhere because in the end you're not going to feel like you missed out. You don't need to forsake God. He's so much better than anybody and anything else. There's nothing and no one who's ever going to love you and care for you like he does. Don't let your heart be stolen from him. Even if you have to suffer the pain of missing out, don't look to something else in his place. Don't forsake the one who loved you and gave himself for you, the only one who did that. Keep trusting. Keep holding on. Because remember that even though Jesus died on the cross, God raised him to life and lifted him up in glory. So hold on to your hope and don't turn good things into God things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, so many of us are struggling and suffering because we don't have what we're praying for. You know our pain. You've experienced our pain and so much more. Through our pain, Lord Jesus, May we still hold on to you. May we honour you. May we honour you and see your beauty and goodness and grace and love and be moved within to praise you and live for you no matter what, for your sake and your glory. Amen.